You are listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. My name is Wing. I'm a journalist and former Chinese international student. I'm recording from Garden Gold Country. I'm Mark. I'm a fresh out of uni graduate and a young Chinese Australian. I'm recording from Wurundjeri Country. In each episode, we'll explore a theme that reflects the daily life of a young Chinese person living in today's Australia. In today's episode, we're actually maybe straying from that just a little. So we're talking about the Chinese-Australian diaspora, but more so how we compare to Chinese-Americans today. Our countries have some overlap with our histories of Chinese migration, but also plenty of differences in terms of like multiculturalism, race, and how Chinese people kind of fit into each society. Even though racism exists in both places, it can be experienced and talked about pretty differently. So today we're unpacking what the differences are between Chinese-Australian and Chinese-American communities, how we talk about and understand ourselves in relation to wider society, and what, if anything, we could learn from them about race and racism. So Mark, in the last episode, you mentioned that you went to the US for an exchange. How is it like? So I studied in America at the start of 2020, just before the pandemic. Um, and I was studying at UC Irvine in Southern California, which was a pretty ethnically diverse area. But I found that there weren't a whole lot of Chinese people there. I felt like in that part of the States, there were more like Vietnamese people, for example. I think there was a really big Little Saigon area kind of near where I was studying. And I think a lot of the international students who were around as well kind of came from other parts of Asia. So I remember Korea being really big, for example. Yeah, interesting, because back in 2014, at the time when I decided to come to Australia to study, I actually didn't intend to come to Australia, but the US. But my parents doesn't like the idea. On one hand, my dad kind of feel that the US isn't that safe because he reads Chinese news a lot and they keep talking about like terrorist attack. And on the other hand, my mom is a cook, so she cares a lot about food. And she worried that there's not a lot of Asian food in the US. And therefore she was like, can you go to Australia? Because it sounds like they have more Asian food there. I don't know if I'm that surprised to hear that your parents were a little bit like mm, unsure about how Chinese, I guess, America is. I think of Australia as having a really strong diasporic Chinese kind of presence, more so than the US, I think, which I generally just sort of feel like is diverse without specifically being like a lot of Chinese people. But that said, actually, our histories with Chinese migration, I feel like between the two countries aren't that different. They both kind of started in the 19th century. A gold rush was kind of involved in both places. And I feel like there's been a pretty similar history with discrimination as well. Discriminatory laws kind of running through the 20th century. And then in recent years, especially since COVID, we've kind of both had movements against racism, right? So in the US, there was a Stop Asian Hate Movement, and then Australia had that I'm Not a Virus campaign as well. And not to mention both countries are actually in a really weird diplomatic relationship with China. Both are in trade wars and there's tension and you can see China's state media keep criticizing the two countries as well. In our last episode, our guest Alex Lee mentioned that the Asian American community has a really huge influence on the Asian Australian culture. So what on earth are the similarities and what are the differences between the two diaspora communities in the two countries? I think this is going to be something that we will discuss and explore. Joining us to discuss these questions are two really incredible people. Dr. Rennie Lee, a sociologist and senior research fellow at the University of Queensland. Her research focuses on international migration, race and ethnicity, and recently on anti-Asian sentiment since COVID-19. 
We're also joined by Ella Shi, a community organizer who grew up and lives in Nam, also called Melbourne, family of Chinese migrants to Australia. She currently works at the Migrant Worker Centre, previously worked at GetUp, and was one of the first people of colour office bearers at the University of Melbourne Student Union. Welcome, Rini and Ella. Hi, it's great to be on the podcast and thanks so much for inviting me to be here. Hey, likewise. Very excited to be here and very interested in hearing your thoughts as well, Rennie. So yeah, thanks for having me. Rennie, you've been in Australia for five years. What is it like to be a Chinese American living in Australia? It's been interesting. One of the things I think that really stood out to me is uh, I was born in the U.S. to immigrant parents. And so we commonly refer to them this kind of large population as the second generation. And so that's been sort of like, I think, you know, in my upbringing, uh, a big part of obviously my identity and a lot of my friends and kind of peer networks have also been part of the second generation. And one thing that I found that was quite interesting when moving to Australia was not seeing that presence as much or that emphasis on this second generation. So individuals who are born in Australia, but have immigrant parents, but have very much grown up here their whole lives and kind of have roots in Australia primarily. Um, in Australia, I think a lot of the emphasis is on immigration, new migrants, international students. So a lot of that kind of focus on newer individuals to Australia, but not kind of individuals who have spent their whole lives here or even later generations of Chinese Australians. We know that Australia has this long history of Chinese immigration over 200 years, but one of the things I really noticed was this kind of emphasis on new immigrants. And that was one thing that really struck me about uh, kind of the differences. That's very interesting. Ella, you are a second generation of Chinese Australian. Do you agree with what Rennie was saying? Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's interesting to reflect on because I think growing up, I never really identified as a second generation, you know, Chinese Australian. I think throughout primary school, you know, even high school, I had a really strong sense of, no, I'm not Chinese. I'm actually Australian. Like I was born here. I'm just like everyone else here. And it wasn't until like quite later in life that I started I guess, interrogating and reflecting on why this might be the case. But I think for the most part, it's because throughout most of my childhood, you know, since the end of the white Australia policy, you know, we've had a very intentional multiculturalism as policy sort of framework for immigration. And within that, ideas of being culturally and linguistically diverse, you know, ideas of, I guess, Australia being a nation of immigrants, but we're all Australian, we're sort of all living in harmony, supposedly, and I think that creates this idea that, you know, once maybe the first generation has come, people kind of want to cast off that identity and just be Australian. And I guess to be blunt, a lot of that does stem also, you know, from a pressure to assimilate from racist bullying that does happen when you're a kid um, and from a want to, I guess, you know, perhaps identify with this sort of dominant majority, you know, for safety, um, sort of belong to be a part of something. I think that really prominent us versus them dynamic in Australia I wonder, like, if you think that also ties into, as you mentioned before, that kind of idea of, like, cultural and linguistic diversity, right? Do you feel like that term kind of helps to accommodate that us versus them dynamic? Like, it accommodates diversity within the us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the idea of being cowled or culturally and linguistically diverse kind of implies that there is something to be diverse from and that something, the sort of implied something, is sort of a white Anglo-Australia. But I think the more interesting part of that term is in talking about being culturally and linguistically diverse, it kind of also ignores our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history and our past, you know, where where do those communities fit into this idea of being cowled? You know, surely European and even 
Anglo um, European migrants to Australia within that framework are also culturally and linguistically diverse. But, you know, in today's context, I think it's usually referred to um, for people who don't speak English, who aren't white. So that's interesting tension there. Is there such a term in the US, Renee? No, so we have non-English speaking, or English is not the first language. But, you know, I agree with Ella that the term called is, even though they talk about linguistically diverse, which would mean encapsulate European languages, when people are talking about called individuals from called backgrounds, it tends to be uh, not just linguistically diverse, but also racial minorities, people that are non-white, essentially. And because it's often couched together with groups that are marginalized, groups that are might be more disenfranchised. And so I think that there is a little bit of like subtext to it as well. I find it really interesting and almost unimaginable in Australia that like you would be asked to identify racially through the census. I feel like in Australia, we kind of dance around that topic a little bit. It's always kind of like you gauge it through the language you speak or the country you were born in, but we don't actually talk about race as much maybe. My impression is that Americans kind of almost are more like upfront and willing to kind of name racism or like name race, at least for what it is. And so that lends itself this whole distinct kind of language around it that we don't have in Australia, really. I guess it's worth thinking about, even if, you know, we throw up terms, categories for understanding, like we're thinking about capturing groups using categories, but they're, they are like negotiated and they change over time too. You know, in the US, like the Irish were considered black when they first immigrated. And obviously now they're considered white. And recently I've seen some other academics talk about how, so in the US context, for instance, Middle Eastern and North Africans are considered white, even though they do not perceive themselves to be white. And since so so there is a lot of pushback about these categories. And so I think that there is a lot of agency from individuals. And that's what's happened in the U.S. context in terms of the census, that there's a lot of pushback by individuals about how these categories, not just the wording, but also whether people can mark more than one race. This was like a, a big issue, marking multiple races. I don't know if you can shed any light on this, Rennie, but I was thinking about how perhaps a lot of the... I guess, racial awareness or sort of awakening into organizing amongst Asian communities in the U.S. perhaps came about throughout the 20th century. There were a lot of wars, a lot of imperialist wars, you know, the Vietnam War. And perhaps that was a unifying way for people who could identify people who looked like them, who were facing, you know, a certain injustice um, or a certain reason to get behind a particular identity. Whereas I think in Australia, you know, post-white Australia policy in the 1970s, I think we have maybe newer waves of migrants where there hasn't been this sort of unifying reason for us to all identify as Asian or all identify behind a particular phrase or name to be politically active or as a source of political power. Yeah, so Ella, I think you're absolutely right about, you know, kind of the term Asian American was really inspired. It was like, uh, on the heels of the civil rights movement. So it was really inspired by Black Power movement. And there's actually, I think it was our students from um, UC Berkeley that kind of came up with this term Asian American as a way to kind of show solidarity and show support. So it's had this legacy and it was developed at this time during the civil rights movement kind of to show that kind of group solidarity. And it's kind of stuck ever since, right? And so we've had that kind of umbrella term. Do you know Aquafina, the actress? She had a moment where she quit Twitter, right? And she posted like this notes app kind of, 
you might call it an apology, but in the notes app screenshot, she kind of talked about being an immigrant and kind of growing up and figuring out how she fit into mainstream American culture. She talked about really loving hip hop and that kind of explaining some of the controversy. What kind of controversy? A controversy with her accent, right? People were kind of criticizing her accent as something like how like African-American people would be perceived to speak, I guess, or like it's been called a black scent. And I found that really interesting in terms of like second generation journey of finding out where you fit as a Chinese person in with the other kind of cultures or the other groups that are around you in America, but like also Australia, right? Picking up on what Ella said before about Australia's history with colonization. We don't have to unpack the whole Okafina controversy, but I'm curious what you think about how Chinese communities kind of fit in with other racial groups, whether in America or in Australia. I mean, it's hard, I think, because it's also a diverse community in and of itself, right? And so there's a lot of diversity across the generations. You know, obviously, younger generations, I think, will have a different perspective to talk a little bit about, I guess, solidarity and racial relations. And this is, I guess, not just about the Chinese community, but Asian Americans more generally, is that kind of, we've seen, you know, the kind of relationship between Asian Americans and African American communities have been kind of important throughout history. But, you know, it kind of, I think it ebbs and flows, right? So I mentioned before the term Asian American really came out of the Black Power movement. But there are other instances in which um, African American leadership was really central in kind of opening the U.S.'s doors to refugee humanitarian migration. They're very vocal supporters. And then, you know, when there was the death of Vincent Chin, when he was murdered, there was a lot of support of by African-Americans as well. And then I think, you know, since Black Lives Matter, we've seen like Asians for Black Lives Matter. And then the reverse for Stop Asian Hate, we've seen the African-American community also come out in support for Stop Asian Hate too. So I think that in terms of like racial relations, I think there is a lot of support. But, you know, of course, the communities, I think also want, may ask, may kind of advocate for different things as well. This reminds me of maybe a similar conversation I saw online recently, and I guess it was about like regional accents in Australia. And I think the gist of what this tweet was saying was that regional accents in Australia are more likely to vary, you know, within a city, but from different suburbs than necessarily between Sydney and Melbourne, for example, or, you know, Brisbane and Adelaide. It's more about the cultural makeup of a specific suburb or area. And I think that can make things more complicated or less clear cut when it comes to, you know, like cultural appropriation, like speaking a certain way. To be honest, I haven't followed the Aquafina issue that much, but, you know, I think it it's off, like it definitely is an issue if somebody is appropriating a black scent, you know, for fame or for clout or for a certain identity or image. But I think there can be instances, um, I'm not saying whether this is or isn't, but there can be instances where that is less clear. Um, I guess a really heavy-handed example would be, you know, someone who's not Chinese wearing a chipao to an event or a party or a festival because they like the look. And I think for the most part, like, I agree, like, you know, don't do that. But then sometimes I've also questioned, you know, as I guess a second generation Chinese person born in Australia who for the most part, I think, actually like has felt quite divorced from a lot of aspects of Chinese culture throughout my life. Is it actually that much more, um, you know, sincere or genuine for me to wear certain Chinese clothes or costumes or do certain things? You know, do I actually kind of inherently have that cultural understanding more? I'm actually not sure. I think it sort of goes back to this broader discussion about trying to find an identity and seeing where you fit in. 
I feel like within Australia, a lot of community identities or sort of cultural identities still happen within a particular community or culture. You know, even in my work at the Migrant Worker Centre, I think a lot of community-based organising happens within, say, the Taiwanese-Australian community or the Filipino community or, you know, the Nepali community. There isn't as much perhaps sort of pan-Asian or cross-community organising or interaction as perhaps there is in the US. And I think I actually see perhaps bigger divides between different generations or different groups, um, you know, of Chinese migrants, for instance, say earlier generations like my parents versus international students now, you know, versus people who come here to work, who are sort of working class, who are working to send money back home versus people who are moving here perhaps, um, you know, for other reasons. So I think those distinctions perhaps occur within the sort of Chinese Australian community itself. Like listening to both Raining and Ella and also Mark, your conversations about fitting into a society, whether it's Australia or the US, made me have a really weird feeling because I come from like an international student background. I fit into this first generation migrant. I have to confess that when I was back into the university, I couldn't really understand why some of my Chinese Australian classmates just didn't like hang out with Chinese international students at all. Some of them actually know how to speak Chinese, but they just reject speaking Chinese to them at all. They would just turn into English, pretend that they don't know how to speak Chinese. I once I was really confused until one of my friends told me about their experience that during the time when they were at school or even at uni, they would just keep being told that, oh, are you an international student? Which made them feel really uncomfortable. And starting from that time, I reflect on this sort of feelings that I myself as a first gen or international student wouldn't understand. I recently read this book by Korean American author Kathy Park Hong, and the book title is Minor Feeling. It talks a lot about the subtleties about feeling of race. It's not really necessary to be racism, but it's just about the experience of being a migrant and trying to fit into the society. Do you have ever feel that you also experienced this sort of minor feeling, Ella? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I think my experience of growing up here is very much one of maybe sensing this sort of difference and wanting to fit in, but not really having the language or ability to sort of pinpoint what was quite different or what I wanted to fit in with. And I, you know... Perhaps it sounds cliche, but it definitely wasn't until I went to uni and started thinking about race more, started thinking about, I guess, society more, that I kind of understood how, you know, people are racialized, how these sort of power dynamics work, how it's sort of rooted in our quite racist migration history and understood how I was perceived by other people a bit better. Um, but, you know, like when your anecdote about, you know, feeling like people of Chinese descent but who, you know, perhaps grew up in Australia didn't want to speak to you at university or interact with you, um, like I'm ashamed to say I think is actually um, like something I can totally understand and see. And I think, you know, hopefully people do reach a point where you are able to interrogate where that feeling comes from, you know, to sort of let go of that sense of internalised racism perhaps. This also reminds me of some campaigns and organising campaigns I've worked on where because we're trying to organize a specific community, um, 
will send out or put out material or content in a certain language, Chinese, for example. And it's interesting because sometimes we get feedback from people who are quite angry and they're like, just because I have a Chinese name, it doesn't mean that I, you know, can't speak English. It doesn't mean that I read Chinese. Like, how dare you make this assumption? It's racial profiling. And obviously, like, racial profiling is bad. And I think there is something to be said about, you know, making assumptions on people based on their appearance. But it's interesting that it had such a visceral reaction and almost anger, like it was something bad to be assumed to speak Chinese when, you know, surely if someone assumed that I spoke Spanish or Arabic or another language, I'd be like, oh, cool. Like they thought I could speak more than one language. That's great. So I think a lot of it does come from internalized racism or not challenging that feeling of not belonging and just, you know, wanting to side with the majority. Does US um, or Chinese American also have similar experience? I guess I should first say that when I taught at university, I had students that said the same thing. I think they're, it sounds like they're born in Australia, but they were very much like, you know, people always think we're international students that don't speak any English and, um, but we're not. And we've actually like, I think we're born in Australia and like kind of grew up here. So like, we don't like to be conflated or we don't like to be assumed to be that. And I think that You know, I think both the U.S. and Australia both have a very, whether they call it multiculturalism, whether they call it something else, it's like there are very strong pressures for people to speak English and to speak it without an accent, to speak. Um, and, and people then interpret that to also mean um, to only speak English, to not speak other languages. You know, so there's very strong pressure, I think, in both countries. Certainly, like, you know, when I was growing up, too, I think there is... Uh, you know, everyone kind of talked about, you know, all only basically spoke English and no one wanted to be called a fob. Do they even, I don't even know if they use that term anymore. I feel like it's probably a bit outdated, but I think it's the same kind of pressures that like all minorities, I think to some extent feel that, that they need to be very Australian, very American. And that is to speak only English and to speak it without an accent. So I certainly think that that's something that's pervasive. And there's a lot of, I think, work that kind of shows like how languages do die, right? Like immigrant languages. So like for Asian Americans beyond the second generation, very few people speak the mother tongue. So it would be if they're in their third generation, very few people speak it. Some still maintain it in the second generation, but beyond that, it's very hard to maintain. And I think it's that you know, these pressures are very pervasive. I definitely resonate with a lot of that because I remember growing up as well, a lot of what you said I resonate with. So like I grew up on like the east side of Melbourne, which is like a more kind of lush kind of well-to-do area. And then I moved to the west and I went to like an all boys high school. And just, yeah, the way we spoke as well was really different, right? I feel like in the western suburbs of Melbourne, there's much more of the kind of broy accent is really distinct there. And then there was a lot of like wanting to fit in. And then going to uni, there was... I almost felt like a bit of shame at like how much I had given up to like fit in. And so it's like, I couldn't speak Chinese with you that fluently, even if I wanted to. This kind of jump into something that I have been watching about the Winter Olympics. There have been two American-born Chinese athletes. One is Elingu, the other one is Zhu Yi, who naturalized themselves to become a Chinese citizen so that they can represent the China team in the Winter Olympics. 
There are lots of controversies coming with that from both the China side and the America side. For example, the America was like, look, we spend so much money in you to train you up as a skater or as an athlete, but now you just turn to China and then compete against us. On the other hand, on Chinese internet, they were like, you grew up in America, like Zhui or Alingu, you don't even speak well Chinese and you just come back to China and take a sport. You are just look like a Chinese, but internally you are still an American and you shouldn't be with us. How would you feel about this? I think one thing that struck me about this whole thing is that, you know, this idea about loyalty or an enemy alien, you know, has this kind of very long history, I think, in immigration or this idea that an immigrant is like we're not sure if they'll ever be loyal, right? Because they're born somewhere else or, and like loyalty is part of citizenship requirements in the U.S. or kind of asking someone, do you have like a strong association to the U.S.? But I think one thing I would say about these two or these particular individuals is that they are highly elite individuals that have a lot of resources to their disposal in that, you know, the idea that someone can like, easily give up their citizenship to have another one is not something that most immigrants will have at their disposal. I think people are talking about now because this kind of greater transnational activities that immigrants might have more ties to their home country because there is the internet, flights are easier um, and cheaper than they used to be in the past. And, And maybe that changes some of this conversation about people only belonging to one country. But I mean, I think when we think about the average immigrant, you know, it's very hard to like kind of do what these, what we assume these athletes are doing, that they can just kind of drop a citizenship and have another one. Once people do live and grow up in a certain place, you know, they have connections to like, you know, their home. And I think one of the the things that we're bringing up here a lot is that even if we all are of Chinese descent, it's not, for many of us, it might not be somewhere where we would go comfortably and be like, we belong here. And especially even people that have lived in and grown up in Australia. I mean, to go to another country that you really don't, you know, you didn't grow up there, that would be kind of a strange experience. What that makes me think of is how you do, I guess, accept this premise of a hyphenated identity, like Chinese American or Chinese Australian. It seems like your acceptance within that kind of dominant majority is always dependent on you, you know, towing the line or doing the right thing or sort of being really excellent and, you know, winning medals for the United States or, you know, doing something good for the United States. And that acceptance is contingent on you behaving and not doing something that is considered to oppose the majority. But I think also the bigger conversation is, you know, athletes change countries all the time. People often will represent one country and then end up, you know, moving to another country or marrying somebody from another country and they play for a different country. That's sort of just what happens these days. And I find it interesting that these Chinese-American athletes seem to have so much more scrutiny placed upon them. I think this example with these two you know, elite athletes maybe just makes the average person who is an immigrant perhaps like more reluctant to identify with their like cultural heritage or you know their Chinese ancestry because I think in the current sort of political context, you know, with China and the US, et cetera, et cetera, like to identify as Chinese or, you know, to have even mentioned some kind of allegiance or interest or connection to China in a public facing way opens you up to that kind of attack or that scrutiny. And I think, you know, perhaps it's examples like these with these two athletes that sort of 
sends waves down to the average person who is thinking, you know, at university, oh, I better make sure that I'm perceived as Australian rather than as Chinese, even if, you know, my family are Chinese immigrants. In Australia, we have had this conversation about foreign interference, in particular those from the United Front work, the Chinese Communist Party, how they interfere into Australia politics via Chinese Australians. We also have a really typical example of three Chinese Australians being questioned about their loyalty in the Senate before they give their testimony. But on the other hand, though, it seems many Asian Australians and Chinese Australians, they would be put into a pigeonhole. Like, for example, because you have Chinese background, we would expect that you deal with trade with China. We would expect that you speak to the Chinese business we would expect that you do stuff that relate to the Asia, despite the fact that you might not actually be able to speak Chinese very fluently. Being completely honest, not to be too contradictory, but I'm not sure if I agree with that entirely, or at least not in my experience. I definitely see what you're saying, but I think my experience has been more of one of, you know, like invisibility, um, I think is a good word. So, for example... I remember seeing this article a few years ago about how, you know, there was only like a few hundred people in Australia who could speak Chinese fluently as a second language. And it was sort of like, oh, my God, with our political future with China, like how will we cope? More people need to learn Chinese. This is like a huge problem. You know, it was obvious from the article that they were only including people who were not of Chinese ancestry or Chinese sort of ethnic descent in this figure. There are probably heaps and heaps of people in Australia who speak Chinese fluently as a second language. So why is this sort of demographic not being considered or sort of acknowledged? And I think on another example, perhaps a bit more realistic for many people is, you know, even in VCE exams um, in Victoria, the Chinese like language stream is divided into two streams where people who have like a Chinese ethnic background are in one stream and sort of have their scores ranked together and people who are learning it without a Chinese background, have their scores ranked together, but no other language is sort of separated like that. And I think that really, I guess the sentiment behind it is, you know, we don't want to disadvantage kids from learning Chinese because they're competing with someone who has like a Chinese family. But I don't think your family being Chinese necessarily means that you inherently, you know, grew up speaking Chinese or are that much better at it than another student. So I think what I've observed actually is, you know, this sense of invisibility where you're sort of visibly Chinese or you're visibly Asian, but your actual lived reality of that is not taken into account. Yeah, that idea that we're like something else, I think, is really interesting. Just we're not that. Um, and I feel like that's like a sort of core nuance that we've been exploring throughout, right? Like different kind of waves or generations will have like very distinct experiences and different kind of, as we were talking about with the athletes before, different kind of people in different circumstances will have a lot of different challenges that they may face or not face. Well, what sort of nuance do you think is missing from the conversation about China or Chinese migration in Australia? You know, one thing I would like to see is that I think a lot of people perceive Australia to have everyone that comes through is like these high skilled migrants. They've got, you know, like high skills, English language skills, high levels of education, and then we assume kind of that they're doing well. But I think that there's probably some diversity within even Chinese migration that we don't perhaps encapsulate or we don't fully understand. And I think one thing that would be interesting to see is, is Chinese migration really just kind of this 
high skilled migration, or are we actually seeing a lot of like working class individuals or individuals that are um, perhaps come through these skill channels, but actually are struggling quite a bit? And I bring this up because in the U.S. context, we actually see you know, even though like Asian Americans are largely perceived to be model minorities, or sometimes there's that, this kind of perception in the public that they're doing well is actually there's this quite a large disparity within even the Chinese community that there's a lot of individuals that are doing quite well, but there's also a lot that are kind of working class and um, are not actually are kind of struggling to get by. So that's something I would actually be curious to know a little bit more. And I understand that there might be less of that because there is a lot of emphasis by, you know, the government to kind of be like, see, this like skilled migration is really useful and like actually immigrants are doing well. And so we don't maybe hear about some of those stories. Um, and the second part is that I, you know, in kind of knowing more about just like the larger Chinese Australian history, it would be interesting to know kind of more about what is happening, what is happening on the third and fourth, the later generations of Chinese Australians who've kind of, um, had this long history in Australia. Um, and kind of, I think that would just, you know, be an interesting way to both honor the Australian history, kind of um, Australian history, but also to know more about what happens in these later generations, because that is sort of a theme that people, you know, um, both, you know, academics, but generally people talk about like what happens over long periods of time in a host country. And I think we have those groups here in Australia, but we don't know a lot about kind of what has happened to these longstanding Chinese Australians. So I think that would be an important conversation to have in understanding our kind of broader understanding of Chinese Australians. And I think, you know, one way to achieve that is to kind of get better at like administrative data collection, um, better kind of knowledge on these kind of um, groups that might be kind of fallen to the wayside, but to that'd be one way to kind of get that information. This is less to do with nuance, but I think a huge missing piece in Australia is also an understanding, like a realistic understanding of that history of migration or that history of Chinese people in Australia. I think we still have quite the sort of romanticized narrative, you know, from colonization. And we haven't really confronted a lot of the realities of racism, of the violence that happened. And because we don't acknowledge those sort of negative things, I think we also lose a lot of the sort of positive things that could be unifying people. In the course of researching or doing a bit of background reading for this, I came across apparently there was this Chinese cabinet makers strike in Melbourne in 1903, where all these cabinet makers, like I think 70% of the workers in Chinatown or something went on strike for like 12 weeks. It was this really amazing event. But I think because our sort of national history is so reluctant to really confront the racism and the issues in our past, we also lose these really incredible moments of people and communities coming together. So I think we need to have a better understanding of that history first. Thank you for listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. This episode was hosted by Wing Kuang and Mark Yin. Our sound designer is Max Gosford. Thanks also to Rachel Sibley, Caroline Gates and Tanya Lee for their support. For more about Chinese-ish, follow us on our social media or check out our website, sbs.com.au slash Chinese-ish.